This is section six of the thirty thousand dollar bequest and other stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The thirty thousand dollar bequest by Mark Twain, Chapter six. It were a weariness to follow in detail the leaps and bounds the Foster fictitious finances took from this time forth. It was marvelous. It was dizzying. It was dazzling. Everything Alec touched turned to fairy gold, and heaped itself glittering toward the firmament. Millions upon millions poured in, and still the mighty stream flowed, thundering along, still its vast volume increased. Five millions, ten millions, twenty, thirty, was there never to be an end? Two years swept by in a splendid delirium, the intoxicated fosters scarcely noticing the flight of time. They were now worth three hundred million dollars. They were in every board of directors of every prodigious combine in the country, and still, as time drifted along, the millions went on piling up, five at a time, ten at a time, as fast as they could tally them off, almost. The three hundred doubled itself, then doubled again, and yet again, and yet once more. Twenty-four hundred millions! The business was getting a little confused. It was necessary to take an account of stock and straighten it out. The Fosters knew it, they felt it, they realized that it was imperative. But they also knew that to do it properly and perfectly the task must be carried to a finish without a break when once it was begun. A ten hours job! And where could they find ten leisure hours in a bunch? Sally was selling pins and sugar and calico all day and every day. Alec was cooking and washing dishes and sweeping and making beds all day and every day, with none to help, for the daughters were being saved up for high society. The Fosters knew there was one way to get the ten hours, and only one. Both were ashamed to name it. Each waited for the other to do it. Finally, Sally said, "'Somebody's got to give in. It's up to me.' Consider that I've named it. Never mind pronouncing it aloud. Alec colored, but was grateful. Without further remark they fell. Fell, and broke the Sabbath. For that was their only free ten-hour stretch. It was but another step in the downward path. Others would follow. Vast wealth has temptations which fatally and surely undermine the moral structure of persons not habituated to its possession they pulled down the shades and broke the sabbath with hard and patient labor they overhauled their holdings and listed them and a long-drawn procession of formidable names it was starting with the railway systems steamer lines standard oil ocean cables diluted telegraph and all the rest and winding up with klondike de beers tammany graft and shady privileges in the post-office department twenty-four hundred millions and all safely planted in good things gilt-edged and interest-bearing income a hundred and twenty million a year alec fetched a long purr of soft delight and said is it enough it is alec what shall we do stand pat retire from business that's it i am agreed the good work is finished we will take a long rest and enjoy the money good alec yes dear how much of the income can we spend the whole of it 
it seemed to her husband that a ton of chains fell from his limbs he did not say a word he was happy beyond the power of speech after that they broke the sabbath right along as fast as they turned up it is the first wrong steps that count every sunday they put in the whole day after morning service on inventions inventions of ways to spend the money they got to continuing this delicious dissipation until past midnight and at every seance aleck lavished millions upon great charities and religious enterprises and sally lavished like sums upon matters to which at first he gave definite names only at first later the names gradually lost sharpness of outline and eventually faded into sundries thus becoming entirely but safely undescriptive for sally was crumbling the placing of these millions added seriously and most uncomfortably to the family expenses in tallow candles for a while aleck was worried then after a little she ceased to worry for the occasion of it was gone she was pained she was grieved she was ashamed but she said nothing and so became an accessory sally was taking candles he was robbing the store it is ever thus vast wealth to the person unaccustomed to it is a bane it eats into the flesh and bone of his morals when the fosters were poor they could have been trusted with untold candles but now they but let us not dwell upon it from candles to apples is but a step sally got to taking apples then soap then maple sugar then canned goods then crockery how easy it is to go from bad to worse when once we have started upon a downward course meantime other effects had been milestoning the course of the fosters splendid financial march the fictitious brick dwelling had given place to an imaginary granite one with a checkerboard mansard roof in time this one disappeared and gave place to a still grander home and so on and so on mansion after mansion made of air rose higher broader finer and each in its turn vanished away until now in these latter great days our dreamers were in fancy housed and in a distant region in a sumptuous vast palace which looked out from a leafy summit upon a noble prospect of vale and river and receding hills steeped in tinted mists and all private all the property of the dreamers a palace swarming with liveried servants and populous with guests of fame and power hailing from all the world's capitals foreign and domestic this palace was far far away toward the rising sun immeasurably remote astronomically remote in newport rhode island holy land of high society ineffable domain of the american aristocracy as a rule they spent a part of every sabbath after morning service in this sumptuous home the rest of it they spent in europe or in dawdling around in their private yacht six days of sordid and plodding fact life at home on the ragged edge of lakeside and straitened means the seventh in fairyland such had become their program and their habit in their sternly restricted fact life they remained as of old plodding diligent careful practical economical they stuck loyally to the little presbyterian church and labored faithfully in its interests and stood by its high and tough doctrines with all their mental and spiritual energies but in their dream life they obeyed the invitations of their fancies whatever they might be 
and howsoever the fancies might change. Alec's fancies were not very capricious, and not frequent, but Sally's scattered a good deal. Alec, in her dream life, went over to the Episcopal camp on account of its large official titles. Next she became High Church on account of the candles and shows, and next she naturally changed to Rome, where there were cardinals and more candles. But these excursions were a nothing to Sally's. His dream life was a glowing and continuous and persistent excitement, and he kept every part of it fresh and sparkling by frequent changes, the religious part along with the rest. He worked his religions hard, and changed them with his shirt. The liberal spendings of the Fosters upon their fancies began early in their prosperities, and grew in prodigality step by step with their advancing fortunes. In time they became truly enormous. Alec built a university or two per Sunday, also a hospital or two, also a Roten Hotel or so, also a batch of churches, now and then a cathedral, and once, with untimely and ill-chosen playfulness, Sally said, It was a cold day when she didn't ship a cargo of missionaries to persuade unreflecting Chinamen to trade off twenty-four-carat Confucianism for counterfeit Christianity. This rude and unfeeling language hurt Alec to the heart, and she went from the presence crying. That spectacle went to his own heart, and in his pain and shame he would have given worlds to have those unkind words back. She had uttered no syllable of reproach, and that cut him. Not one suggestion that he look at his own record, and she could have made, oh, so many, and such blistering ones. Her generous silence brought a swift revenge, for it turned his thoughts upon himself. It summoned before him a spectral procession, a moving vision of his life, as he had been leading it these past few years of limitless prosperity, and as he sat there reviewing it, his cheeks burned and his soul was steeped in humiliation. Look at her life, how fair it was, and tending ever upward, and look at his own, how frivolous, how charged with mean vanities, how selfish, how empty, how ignoble, and its trend never upward, but downward, ever downward. He instituted comparisons between her record and his own. He had found fault with her, so he mused. He! And what could he say for himself? When she built her first church, what was he doing? Gathering other blasé multimillionaires into a poker club, defiling his own palace with it, losing hundreds of thousands to it at every sitting, and sillily vain of the admiring notoriety it made for him. When she was building her first university, what was he doing? Polluting himself with a gay and dissipated secret life in the company of other fast bloods, multi-millionaires in money and paupers in character. When she was building her first foundling asylum, what was he doing? Alas, when she was projecting her noble society for the purifying of the sex, what was he doing? Ah, what indeed! when she and the WCTU and the woman with the hatchet, moving with resistless march, were sweeping the fatal bottle from the land, what was he doing? Getting drunk three times a day, when she, builder of a hundred cathedrals, was being gratefully welcomed and blessed in papal Rome, and decorated with the golden rose which she had so honorably earned, what was he doing? Breaking the bank at Monte Carlo. He stopped 
he could go no farther. He could not bear the rest. He rose up with a great resolution upon his lips. This secret life should be revealing and confessed. No longer would he live it clandestinely. He would go and tell her all. And that is what he did. He told her all, and wept upon her bosom, wept and moaned, and begged for her forgiveness. It was a profound shock, and she staggered under the blow. But he was her own, the core of her heart, the blessing of her eyes, her all in all. She could deny him nothing, and she forgave him. She felt that he could never again be quite to her what he had been before. She knew that he could only repent and not reform. Yet all morally defaced and decayed as he was, was he not her own, her very own, the idol of her deathless worship? She said she was his serf, his slave, and she opened her yearning heart and took him in. End of chapter 6